Welcome to the Walkworthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. I want to extend my welcome to you as well, and especially the the children who are among us this morning, and just to think through the promised blessings of God and how they operate to fulfill His purposes for the praise of Christ and the salvation of His covenant people. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I almost named this sermon, You Can't Tell the Players Without a Scorecard, but I'll explain that idea in a moment. Rather, I titled it as I did because understanding how God and His promised blessings operate to fulfill His purposes will increase our hope in His promises and know them to be certain, as Jacob did, as we will look at in Genesis 48. God promises us a secure future in Christ to produce hope in us. God prescribes suffering to promote proven faith, which assures us of our hope. God proves himself to be faithful to us to provide surety of hope in Christ's work and the Holy Spirit's presence and with us. And kids, those of you with us today, I have a new favorite example of hope, and it is the Tootsie Pop. Because the Tootsie Roll Pop, we do not hope the way the world hopes. We do not say, like the world says, well, I, I hope the Leafs win the cup next year, right? Which is a wish. We don't have any idea. But we hope in Christ, we hope in the promises of God, like the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. Depending on the flavor you have, and I have a good one here to, to see it, you can see the Tootsie Roll Center in the pop. It's there. And I hope for it because it's already there. I can see it. And I already have it. I have it in my hand. Now, I don't have it yet. I'm going to have to suck through many layers of hard candy to get to it. But it's here, and I hope in it because I already have it. And that's the hope we have in God. His hope is sure. Through faith in Christ, we already have it. And it's going to be revealed in a time to come. And if you are here and you are a, uh, a youth or a kid, after the service, I have a whole bag of these to give to you. I'm keeping this one. Also, if you go out into the foyer, there's the TNT Mega Sour Pop. In the middle is bubblegum. If you have one, the bubblegum is sure, right? You can trust, you can hope that you will get bubblegum in the center of the pop because it's there and you will have it. So our hope is sure, and God makes promises and and works our faith to strengthen it so that we and our hope is sure in Him. It's not wishful thinking. It is an expectation of what will come. So... At the very least, Scripture is always communicating God's truth to us through the experiences of the people involved. This is one of the ways we can look at Scripture. 
at the very least, Scripture is communicating God's truth to us through the experiences of the people involved. And I really appreciate it when Caleb last week spoke of looking through the text through the eyes of Jacob. There is so much to be seen in Scripture through the experiences of those whose story is being told. So we will see God's promises and the future of the covenant family as it becomes the covenant nation through the eyes of Jacob and his sons. So, one of the things I want us to do is, let's put Genesis 48 in its context. Genesis 45, I believe, is actually the climax of the book. In Genesis 45, we see Joseph is revealed to his brothers. We see that Joseph is revealed to his father. The covenant family is provided for with food, clothes, money. The covenant family is invited to live in the best of Egypt. This great reunion is happening through the revelation of Joseph and the maturity of Judah. Everything that follows is what we call a denouement, the part of the story where the, the strands of the plot are drawn together and resolved, and we see, we see things finish well for the patriarchs. We see things finish well for Jacob. We see promises made to Abraham begin to be fulfilled. We see blessing of the covenant family after decades of struggle, loss, and deprivation. We see that in chapters 46 and 47. And now we are going to see the prophecies of God coming to fruition and a good ending for the patriarchs. And we're going to see in the future that the story isn't over. That's what 48 and 49 are about. Because we have not yet seen the seed of the woman as promised in Genesis 3.15, or the one offspring of Abraham promised in 12.7. And there are now other promises yet to be fulfilled. The growing of the covenant family into nations, especially the chosen nation, and gaining possession of the land. So now, the denouement of Genesis 46 through 50 is turning from the good ending of the patriarchs into a new beginning, the continuing of the story and that is where we find ourselves in today's text. And what will contemporary readers of this text see? Well, I'm hoping that you'll see that there's more to come. The story isn't over. It doesn't end with Genesis. There are more promises being made here at the end. God is honing or sharpening our knowledge of his promised one. We will know more about him than we did at the beginning. And we are moving from the covenant family to the chosen nation. What will we see as we read? Our story, our story, our personal stories will look like Israel's story. God works similarly in us. And we look back to Jesus rather than forward to Jesus as they did. So with that introduction, I want to read our text for today. Genesis 48, verses 1 through 22. So let's take a look at that together. So in Genesis 48, 1 through 22, here's what we find. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. 
and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given to me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my long life, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make me as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with the sword and with my bow. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together again one more time, and I'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we need grace for this moment. We need grace to see. We need your spirit to come. Help us to understand what we read. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to be changed by the truth that we witness in this text. So, Father, do that work among us as we, as we go through this text together, I pray in your son's name. Amen. So, God promised blessings... This is where we're going to start. God's promised blessings operate contrary to human convention. So that other possible title, you can't tell the players without a scorecard, 
is what scorecard vendors yelled the fans as they entered into ballparks back in the early days of professional baseball, and it's probably due to the fact that they didn't have names or even numbers on their jerseys. And so without a scorecard giving you the batting order and the positions, it was hard to discern who was doing what when, especially from a distance. And I'm an avid baseball fan, and I love to keep score. I even have my own scorebook that I designed and had printed because I didn't like the scorecards at the ballparks. So I, I know scorecards. And though we can still keep track of players with, because they have their numbers and their names, right? I, I still love to keep score. So today, this phrase, you can't tell the players without a scorecard, is used to describe a situation where there are so many changes or complexities that you need some kind of basic guidance to understand what is happening. And that seems to be the case here, as we'll see. So human convention at the time bestowed the family inheritance on the first and, and primarily on the father's firstborn son. That was the convention. In Jacob's case... This would have been Reuben, followed by Simeon, Levi, and Judah. But look at what happens. Joseph is admitted into his father's presence with his two sons alone and ahead of any other of the sons. Joseph is admitted as if he were the firstborn. And then Ephraim and Manasseh are adopted by Jacob and take the places of Reuben and Simeon as in the birth order. We see that in 48 5 right they shall be as Reuben and Simeon what he's saying is I'm adopting them your sons are now my sons they will inherit directly from me and they are taking the place of Reuben and Simeon the first and second born and also then we see that um, Jacob is also Joseph I'm sorry is also blessed as the firstborn through the blessing on his sons and even though Manasseh is the older of Joseph's sons, they are switched. So Ephraim II is being treated as the firstborn. So it gets a little confusing, as you can tell. But what's important to see is that human convention is not the way God plans his promised blessings on the covenant family or on the nation. So we see that there's a lot of changes going on. God is not working according to human convention. And we can see in 48.3 and verses 19 and 20, Jacob is also speaking prophetically. We see this even more so in chapter 49 next week, which is a companion to our chapter, where Jacob speaks in Genesis 49.1, I'm going to tell you what is to come. So in Genesis 49, we will also see that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are passed over for the firstborn blessings as they have all been disqualified. And in the actual blessings themselves, we see the pronouncements we see Jacob say why they have disqualified themselves. And so then in Genesis 49, 8, Judah, the fourthborn, is from whom the kings shall come. We see this play out further in Scripture Right. If we look, um, we look at at. It's actually going to be Joshua, who is from Ephraim, who will lead Israel into the land and conquer it. But in Psalm seventy-eight six and seven, I'll just read that quickly. He that being God rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. 
So we see that even though Ephraim is blessed as the firstborn, and even Joshua leads the people into the land, when a king is chosen by God, it will come from Judah, as Jacob has said. So we see that God's promised seed will be a king through Eve, then Noah, then Abraham, and now Judah. So we know a little bit more of the promised one that God has, has promised to us. It, it, it was going to be, a, 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 it's the seed of Eve, and, and then we know it's the seed of Noah, and then we know it's going to be the seed of Abraham, and now we know it's going to be the seed of Judah. And as God promised to Abraham, uh, we're, we're going to see this, it's, it's, it's kind of going to look like an hourglass, and things have filtered down from the offspring of Eve now through the offspring of Judah. We're narrowing the possibilities for where the promised one is going to come from. Next, we're going to look at this. God's promised blessings operate contrary to our expectations. As God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 13, Israel will not grow into a great nation in the land, but in a foreign land. And we see that again in verse 41. They will, not, they will come out with great possessions as God judges Egypt, but this will come to fruition as they will be rescued slaves, not conquering heroes. We would expect that if they're going to go into the land of Egypt, they're going to live in the best of the land, and they're going to leave 400 years later plundering Egypt that they would be coming out as conquering heroes. But rather, they are going to come out as rescued slaves. That, we wouldn't expect that. We wouldn't think that that's the way it's going to come about. They flourish among plague as outcasts and as Pharaoh's slaves. Right? They are shepherds. Egypt will have nothing to do with them. There is a famine, and yet they will flourish. There will be plagues, and yet they will prosper. God's promises are not fulfilled without hardship and suffering as we have seen and as we will see. So God's promised blessings operate within the peaks and valleys of our lives. That's our next point. So we've seen that he operates contrary to convention, contrary to expectations, and now we will see that God's promised blessings operate within the peaks and valleys of our lives. In the valleys, we see that Jacob is ill and dying in verse 1. Promises made while Jacob is on the run and wrestled with God we see in verse, 30, verse 3, remember he says, in Luz. And we remember that this is where Jacob was on the run, he wrestled with God, and this is where these promises were made to him. Rachel died relatively young, we see that in verse 7. There's famine and fleeing to Egypt, and there's separation from his favored son, Joseph. These are the valleys in Jacob's life in which the promised blessings of God work. But there are also peaks, and we don't want to miss those. There's provision of reunion, favor, blessing, preservation, and hope for the covenant family and for Jacob. And we heard all of that in Caleb's sermon a week ago. There is hope in the promises of God. These things will happen. There is the presence of God in the covenant family. I will go before you. God tells Jacob. And we see the flourishing family 
we've gone from one son to 12 to a company of 70 that are in the land of Egypt. And they will become a nation there. So we see that in, in Genesis 48 and, and through the whole dédoumois of this text that God's promised blessings are operating within the peaks and valleys of their lives. And so it will work in our lives as well. Our next point, the next thing we want to see is God's promised blessings operate to fulfill His purposes. His purposes. The covenant family is preserved for the sake of God's chosen seed and the salvation of the people for Himself. They are the covenant family. They are preserved. All of Egypt is preserved so that the covenant family is preserved, so that the coming seed of the woman will happen. God is making His promised blessings such that they will fulfill His purposes. He says, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. So we've seen that with Egypt, and we will see it again. And inheritance goes two ways. We see that in, in Psalm 78, in verse 71, just a couple verses after what I read, that Israel, the covenant people, is the inheritance of God. His covenant people are His inheritance. And God is the inheritance of His people, you and me, in Christ. We ref, uh, reflect on what Caleb read in Ephesians 1 earlier, right? According to the purpose of His will is said two times in this text, uh, verse 5 of Ephesians 1 and verse 11, right? We see, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And again it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all of God's promises work to fulfill his purposes, Everything culminates in Jesus, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the son of David, and the son of God. That's where the promises all culminate. So we see the hourglass. It's, it's from any offspring of Eve to the offspring of Abraham, Noah, offspring of Abraham, offspring of Judah, offspring of David, to Jesus. And then it expands back out again as all who trust in the name of Jesus are saved and the covenant people then expand both before Christ and after Christ comes. And the hourglass expands again to make up a nation, a nation made up of all peoples. So that's important to see. And, the, and the, the last thing I want us to see is that God's promised blessings operate to save us beyond our wildest imaginings. We have been given an imagination in order to see the unseen and imagine the unimaginable. That is what we've been given imaginations for. So we can picture things that are unseen through our imaginations. Right? So remember from Caleb's welcome in 1 Peter 1 and the rest of the chapter, our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading and it's kept in heaven. That's wild. 
Have you ever had anything in this life which is imperishable? Even with a refrigerator, things go bad. I know from personal experience. You leave it in there too long, you forget about it, it's perishable. It doesn't matter what it is. And undefiled, things that are never marred, never dented, never scratched, never grow old, unfading, they're always bright and shiny and new. Heaven will always have that new heaven smell that we love in our cars, and it will never fade. It's unimaginable, and yet we are promised this. And what does it mean that our inheritance is kept in heaven besides the fact that it's in the future and unseen like the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Well, heaven is where God is. It's God's kingdom. It is now and not yet. It is God's people living in God's presence. It is God's people dwelling in God's place. And it's God's people enjoying God's rule. That is what the kingdom is. And it's here now. And it's yet to come. It's not yet complete. And it will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the promised seed, the promised offspring. It is, he is indwelt by, the, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit as he leaves. There is, Paul talks about a weight of glory in 2 Corinthians 4. And these metaphors help us describe and relate to what we can only experience and can barely explain. Just look at Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Imagine that, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's, a, that's three quarters of our surface area, different, changed. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. These are beyond our wildest imaginings. I, I cannot imagine what that looks like. A new heaven, a new earth, a city, the people of God descending. And it says more about that new Jerusalem. I'm trying to describe it in metaphor because it is indescribable. And that's what we face. I mean, streets paved with pure gold, transparent as glass. I've never seen that. Have you ever seen gold like that? I have some in the back of my car if you'd like to buy some. I'll show it to you after the service. It's great. Give it to you for a deal. We can't even imagine it, what that's like. It doesn't even exist now. So here's the question we have, is how ought we to operate? How ought we to operate according, in accordance with God's promised blessings? Well, much the same way as we've already seen in chapter 48. Spoiler alert, God has not changed the way he operates since Adam or a and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not changed. He will operate the same way in our lives. Another way of asking this question is, how do we live a life of love for God and others by faith in the hope of God's future promises? 
rather than losing faith and hope in God's promises, we will let Genesis reorient us as it is meant to reorient the original audience of Old Testament Israel. We are going to let how God operates in 48 help encourage our faith. So, what do we see? God is always with us. He is present. He knows, He listens, and He acts. God is leading us through the wilderness of our sin and suffering. God redeems and transforms us even as he did Jacob and Judah. God will eventually make all things new and right. That's unimaginable for all things to be new and right. Never seen it. So how does God do this in us through Genesis and other scripture? So this is how we're going to talk for the rest of the sermon so we expect God to operate contrary to our conventions, right? We see in Isaiah 18, uh, cha uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, here's what it says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. That is not the convention we expect. We expect that if God calls us to reason with Him and we are sinners, then judgment will surely fall. And yet, in God's reasoning, He forgives us and cleanses us and transforms us and gives us the good of the land, just as Jacob and the people received it in Egypt. We're not expecting that. And yet, that's how God operates When I first graduated from seminary back in the 1990s, some of you remember it, some of you can only imagine it, I came out of seminary and there were no church positions. I went into business and banking. And out of that, God equipped me for ministry for 20 years at a church where I then went on staff and then ended up back in seminary to further train to be able to do what I do now. So your life will not happen necessarily toward convention. Who comes out of seminary and goes into business? And who goes from business into church work? I mean, it happens. It happened to me. But it's contrary to convention. It's contrary to what we would normally be going to seminary for. And your life is like that as well. And if I could counsel you individually, we could dwell deeply on that. But here we are in a, in a crowded place, and I can't counsel you individually, but I want you to be able to see through the experiences of those whose stories are being told in the text that your life, God will not unfold your life according to convention necessarily. There will be things that you think will surely happen because that happened, and God has something completely different in mind whether it's the job you have or where you live or who you marry or don't marry or the kids you have or don't have, it won't necessarily happen according to convention. Your lives will not necessarily fit some cookie-cutter idea. We expect God to defy our expectations. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, 
God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Think of the disciples being called when Jesus goes down to the beach, James and John and Peter, and Jesus says, come and I will make you fishers of men. And they, they drop everything, their nets, and they go. And then there's a time when they're sent out two by two and they're healing people and casting out demons in Jesus' name and they must think, this is it. We are fishers of men, as Jesus promised. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he's arrested and he dies on the cross. And it all seems like it's gone to ruin. Three days later, he rises again, and they're gathered in a room at Pentecost, and the Spirit falls, and they go out, and they become the fishers of men that Jesus promised them. In fact, Jesus goes back down to the beach after his resurrection, and there they are, casting their nets. They're back to fishing. Their expectation is Jesus is dead. This is over. But it's not. Jesus defies expectations. He rises from the dead. I just look at the, the coming together of opportunities in Leanna in my life as we are looking for a way forward and Jesus provides a church plant to go where we can exercise our gifts more fully in a smaller community and an opportunity to go back to school online at the same time and an opportunity to counsel and prepare for what God has in store for us. We found housing in a city where housing is scarce, and that's happened again here in Cambridge. Folks, when we live our lives, we think they're going to work out in a certain way based on our circumstances today, and God does not operate that way. What we have today will change. Nothing in this life lasts forever in that sense. Even the good things, hard things will come. And in the midst of hard things, good things will come. Your life is not set in stone. What you're experiencing today is just a chapter. God will provide for what He commands. And He is working out His purposes in your life. So, we also expect God and His blessings to overflow in the middle of trouble. We see that in James 1, 2, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We would not expect that to happen, that blessings will flow through suffering, and yet that's what James is saying, and he saw it himself. So God's blessings will overflow in our trouble and in our sin. And don't forget in the middle of triumph that God's provision and, and care for you is His and not of your own doing. He warns Israel of this just as they're about to go into the land in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. No, you shall remember the Lord your God, and it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. So, 
when things are going well, don't think I did this. Remember, God did it. And when things are going poorly, remember, God is also pouring out blessings and doing a work for you in the midst of it. I mean, we see Elisha. Remember the story of Elisha and the widow's oil and sons in 1 Kings? The, the widow, whose husband died, comes to him and says, I need help. My creditors are coming and they're going to take my sons and make them slaves. And Elisha says, do you have any oil? Well, I have a little bit in a pot. That's what I have. Well, go to your neighbors and get every pot you can get your hands on. Then go into your house and close the door and start filling up those pots with that oil you have. That's ridiculous. But she does it. And what happens is there's oil in her pot to fill every pot that she borrows until every pot is full, and then the oil runs out. And then she says, what am I supposed to do with all this oil? Go and sell it, and go pay your creditors, and your sons will not be taken. And that's what she does. That's God's provision in the midst of trouble. Or the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears at the Pharisee's house, Simon's house, and her sins are forgiven. That's crazy talk, but it's true. Solomon asks for wisdom and wealth is added to him. And I think of the season of waiting to come here. Waiting for, what do we wait for, Leanna? Two years? Yep, two years we waited to come here. And during that season, uh, cancer was discovered, and my parents passed away, and Leanna lost her dad, and yet there was uh, surgery and healing. And all of that happened in a two-year span while we're waiting for this moment. And then this moment comes, and God provides in the midst of hardship. So in your hardship, look to the unseen. Imagine what God is doing, not just the reality and the hard things and the good things you see in front of you, but imagine what God is up to in your life. Imagine that when you're looking for a job and you don't get the one you hoped for, that another one is on the way. God will provide, and it might not even be through a job. Who knows what he's going to do? Or when your child is sick and the diagnosis is dire, who knows what God is going to do? Imagine he is up to good because he tells us that he is. He's up to good. And we trust him for it because he's been so faithful both in Scripture and in our lives. So we don't think these are the ends of the, our story. God is up to more. Just as Genesis 48 is not the end, it is an end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. And God is up to more. And even though the seed of the woman has come and we know his salvation, he is coming again and we are waiting for him. And we wait and we can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Just like they could not really imagine what salvation God was working for in the seed of the woman. They had no idea what it meant that he was going to crush the serpent's head and the serpent was going to bite his heel. They had no idea. And even though we know about the new heavens and the new earth and God dwelling with us, that is unimaginable what that will be like. And yet we hope for it. 
Expect God's blessings to accomplish His purposes and not your private passions. God is shaping you in holiness to conform you to the image of His Son. That's the point of Romans 8, 28 and 29. He is conforming you to the image of His Son. That's what He's up to. God is making you fit for heaven. Look at Hebrews 12. But, the, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems unpleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God is up to the purposes of conforming you to the image of His Son. That's His purpose. That's what He's doing. That's what His promises are designed to do. Do not look for God to give you every private pleasure. He will give you good things according to His purposes for you. And in your holiness and in your increased faith, your hope is in the inheritance is sure. Look at the man born blind from birth. He can't imagine. He, no one can imagine why he is. The he, illness and hardship came to those who were sinners, but he was born blind. And the only question the disciples can ask Jesus is, what, what, was it him or was his parents who sinned that he was born blind? We can't figure it out. And Jesus says, Neither. He was born blind, so here and now in this moment, I might be glorified and you might see me as the Son of God. And he heals him. That's why. Born blind from birth so that the purposes of God would be fulfilled in his healing. Incredible. So we expect God's promised blessings to save us and deliver us beyond our wildest imaginings. Think of Lazarus raised from the dead. Lord, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. He would have been healed. Well, do you, do you believe in me? Oh, yes, yes, I know you can raise the dead. I just don't expect that it's going to happen today. And it does. And Lazarus is raised, and he will be raised again with us in Christ. Wildest imaginings. They did not imagine Lazarus walking out of the tomb in four days. And for us... Hespeler Baptist Church is a unicorn. It really is. I don't think we ever thought that we were going to find such a church with the staff it has and the people it has and its adherence to the gospel and sound doctrine and a philosophy of counsel that we believe in. We never, we just, it just doesn't exist. Every opportunity we looked at had some flaw and this church is flawed, don't get me wrong, I'm not blowing smoke at you. We're all flawed because this church is filled with sinners. But you're a unicorn as well, in that the important things that were necessary for, for the ministry God was preparing for us to flourish were here. And we didn't imagine that we were going to have to cross a border to do it. But that's what God did, and He brought us faithfully home. So, how will you imagine God's blessings coming to you in and through your life, transforming it, changing it in your present circumstances, through your present circumstances? Do you have an imagination that can fathom that God is up to something good? Jacob did. Jacob knew enough to cross his hands over Joseph's sons. 
He knew enough to, when he gave the blessings to his sons to say, I am going to tell you what will come to pass. He knew enough about God's faithfulness to know that God's word would be faithful. And even though he had no idea how it was all going to work itself out, he knew that God was going to do it. Can you think like that? Can you pray like that? Can you believe like that? We want to trust the promises of God given us in Scripture because that's how He works, that's how He has worked, and that's how He will work for you and for me. So hopefully this not only reorients us, but it turns us upside down a bit. And that's who God is for us. And who knew that I was going to go so far over? I didn't. But hopefully it was good and it was worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, we know that you are a God who makes promises. You are a God who keeps promises. And you are a God who fulfills your purposes that your Son, Jesus, would be glorified and that we would find our joy in all of your promises. Yes and amen in Christ. And so, Father, you will work as you have worked beyond our human conventions, beyond our personal expectations, in the midst of both the peaks and the valleys of our lives. Father, that you will work to fulfill your purposes in us and in your world and not necessarily our private pleasures and our private passions and our heart's desires when they don't accord with your purposes. And Father, you will fulfill your promises to us beyond our wildest imaginings, both in how you fulfill them and what they will bring. So Father, would our imaginations help us to hope and to sing your praises in the midst of our current circumstances. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.